Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, it's Mike, and I'm here with an ask. If you don't already follow the show, that's the way to do it. Followers is a metric that's very helpful for us at Peach Fish to know about. And in fact, because I am asking you for a favor, I think we must evoke Julia Roberts. I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Thank you in advance. I don't quite feel that desperate, though, for the record. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. This is the Saturday Show, where we bring you one from the week and one from the vault. Our one from the week this week is fresh, it's new, it's me and Mike Greenberg doing Jets Talk. I know you didn't ask for it, you probably didn't ask for it, but you're going to get it. Don't worry, we expand it out so that if you don't give a good god darn about the Jets or about Aaron Rodgers, we make it interesting for you. It's a little bit uh, sociological and the nature of fandom, but also how weird is Aaron Rodgers? And then I bring you one from the vault, my interview with Mimi Sheridan. When I talked to Mimi Sheridan in 2018, I believe she was 92 years old, the longtime food writer, apparently the first writer to wear a disguise so restaurants wouldn't know she was reviewing them. She died at the age of 97. When I went to her home, she was a delight. She remained that way through all her years, uh, a very important and innovative food critic and I had the pleasure to speak with her, and now we bring you that interview as well. Enjoy them both. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Mike Greenberg is the author of Got Your Number, The Greatest Sports Legends and the Numbers They Own. He is a host on ESPN and has been for 25 years. He is also, like me, a huge Jets fan. And I'm going to use this segment of Pesca Plus to talk Jets fandom, but I'm going to do it in a way, I hope, that interests everyone who doesn't even know that the Jets wear green. And it's to talk about their acquisition, possible acquisition, of a new quarterback by the name of Aaron Rodgers. So first, Mike, do you think the Jets should acquire Rodgers? Yes, definitely. Um, We've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. For those who don't know, the recent history of the Jets is that they have drafted two quarterbacks in the top three picks of the draft in the last six years. One of them is merely bad. The other one might very well be the worst pick ever. So we've tried that and it didn't work. Uh, let's, Let's roll the dice with someone who we know for for certain, because we've seen it with our own eyes, that if it goes well, 
is going to be one of the greatest players of all time. He's going to go down as one of the greatest players of all time. And he doesn't have to be 100% of himself at his best to propel this team in special directions because this team is special unto itself. It needs competent quarterback play. And what he can provide, hopefully, is at least that, if not more, make a few good plays per game, eliminate the crippling mistakes that we were getting in seemingly every game from our quarterbacks last year and provide some leadership and confidence that I think a lot of the younger players on that team will feel merely from having him on their side. So I think it is a no-brainer to go get him. And it has been, for more context, it has been 13 years since the Jets even made the playoffs, a string of losing records or just missing the playoffs even when they were 10-6 and one year. So that's also important to know. But when you say maybe the Jets had the worst pick ever with a quarterback, isn't some of that because it was the Jets picking them? I don't mean in terms of karma. I mean, some teams have good quarterback coaches and good systems and know how to develop quarterbacks, and the Jets very much seem not to be in that camp. Yes. I have an expression that I use frequently, which is that more young quarterbacks are ruined than developed in football. And I think Ah. you might be able to apply that to Sam Darnold, who I think came in with some tools and I do think was done an an enormous disservice by the thorough incompetence of the Jets organization at the time that he was there. No one could have succeeded under those circumstances, and it may have stunted his growth to a point where it'll just basically have ruined his career. In the case of Zach Wilson, I don't know. I think that he's the problem. Um, I think Zach, from everything I'm told, I don't know him personally. I'm not telling you something that I know. But I think there were real personality problems in the locker room. I think there were leadership problems. I think it goes it goes to places that um, I think it goes to places that suggest it was just a terrible pick. It was a it was a terrible choice. A lot of the problems that have come up were things that I think should have been certainly could have been foreseen. And um, I, I don't I don't blame this one on the Jets coaches. I blame this one on the decision to draft him in the first place. So. I am a huge Jets fan. I want to get to Rodgers and his personality, but I want to talk about Jets fandom. I'm a big Jets fan. I, like you, we had season tickets, but only to Shea. Last game ever at Shea Stadium. Uh, People were tearing up the sod and the field. Cops were taking it away from people. My dad said to a cop, could I just take this? He said, yeah. To this day, the house my dad lives in on Long Island has some Shea Stadium grass in the backyard. So we love the Jets. To be a Jets fan is to be perpetually disappointed. Mets fandom's a little like this too. But I wonder, and I step aside from myself, do we play that up a little too much? There are other teams. When I think of the Detroit Lions, when I think of the Cleveland Browns, teams that never won a Super Bowl, unlike the Jets, never been to a Super Bowl, unlike the Jets, certainly predated the Jets, they seem to have a much much sadder sactum of fandom. So is there a little bit too much? You know, the Jets have had, the Jets went to conference championships in the last, I don't know, 15 years. Do we play this up too much and feel a little too sorry for ourselves as a uh, way of identifying ourselves? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Because first of all, yes, the Jets have been to a Super Bowl and the Browns and Lions haven't, but I wasn't alive there. Actually, I was alive. I was one when this happened and you weren't alive. So that's the same thing as it not having happened at all. Two, the only thing worse than your team being bad is your team being just good enough to get your hopes up. And what the Jets major in, what they specialize in, is getting your hopes up and then ripping your heart out of your chest, dropping it on the floor, rolling over it with a truck, 
pouring gasoline on it, setting fire to it, then backing the truck up so it rolls over it again, <laughs> and then putting it back in your chest. Yeah. Is it the Hess truck, by the way? That's what it probably <laughs> is, the Hess oil truck. So that's what the Jets major in, and that's worse. So, so for example, there's an expression people use, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. It is quite obviously not better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. It is much better never to have loved at all. Anyone who's ever loved and lost knows that. It's the same stupidity that says it's good luck to, if it rains on your wedding day. No, it's not, you idiot. It is the very definition of bad luck if it rains on your wedding day. That's just something they say so you don't feel so bad as it's raining on you on your wedding day. So the point is that I would much rather just have my team be bad. Like, I'll give you an example. My beloved Northwestern Wildcats, that's my alma mater, and we just made the NCAA tournament for only the second time in the history of our program. And as we're getting set to play our second game, we won our first game of the tournament, played really well, and we're getting set to play UCLA, a game in which we are prohibitive underdogs. I said to my wife, I would much rather lose this game by 40 than lose at the buzzer. If we lose by 40, they're just better than us. Okay, they, they beat us. They're a better team. God bless them. We had a great year, and, and we move on with our lives. If we play them dead even, and we lose at the buzzer, or God help us, we lose on a bad call or something like that, I'll never get over it. And that's what the Jets are. The Jets are not the kind of bad that you just live with. The Jets yeah. are the kind of bad that you never get over it. And to me, that's way worse. Uh, and, and rain on your wedding day, famously misidentified as something that is ironic in a uh, famous song from the '90s. But you know, your your uh, co-author on Got Your Numbers, a big uh, Philadelphia sports fan, right? And I was talking to my Philadelphia sports fan friend, and I said, you know, the '76ers, like three weeks ago, I would have said they might beat the Bucks out of the East, but now I've, I'm a little worried about them. And he said, I can't even get into the Sixers this year because the Eagles lost in the Super Bowl. And the Phillies lost in the World Series. And I wanted to throw the phone at him. To, ha to reach the championship game is fantastic. It injects the season with many more weeks of wonder and spectacle. And they came so close. So I think that the rip the heart out, if you get to the place, if Northwestern never made the NCAA, maybe that's not, maybe the comparison wasn't a 40-point loss or a buzzer loss, to never make the tournament, that is just deadening. And it's alive and living to have a team that at least instills these emotions in you. So, so it's not a good analogy because in college basketball, just making the tournament is kind of an accomplishment unto itself. Right. It is kind of right. winning, especially for a team that had only made it once before in our entire history. And, and going back before 20, like when we got in in 2017. Right. And now point, with 350 teams and yeah. only 68 make it, it's the right. top 5%. It is an accomplishment. So that's different. But with regard to something like the Jets, who are a professional team and in theory should have the same chance that everybody else does, mm -hmm. that is different. And when the Jets have made playoff runs over the years, which to your previous point, they have done many times in my lifetime, um, going back to when they got there in 81, they lost their first playoff game in 82, which was the strike shortened season. They got to the AFC championship game. That's the AJ Dewey game, you know, winning two games, two playoff games along the way, Cincinnati and the Raiders. Um, and then the, the more recent all the way through to the more recent ones with the Rex Ryan teams that, that won two games each on the road 
um, and before losing in the conference championship game, the hardest part of them losing in, as a fan for me was that it was over. It mm. was not so much that they didn't win the championship. So, and I think I'm actually Ill, um, amplifying the point you're making, which is like, I remember when the Jets were making those runs, I got into bed every single night with the newspapers <laughs> and I lay there before I went to sleep and I just read every story about the Jets. It was so exciting and so much fun. And there was something to look forward to and something to be thinking about and something to be nervous about and something to be excited about. And then when it ends, it wasn't as much that we didn't win the championship as there isn't another game next week. I don't have anything, you know, it, it, and that, that was the hardest part. So, so in that regard, yes, extending it out is better. Um, but it also makes the finality of it harder. Like it, it makes it worse when it happens. So would I rather my team get to the Super Bowl and lose than make like not make the playoffs at all? Yeah, I, I guess I, I'm sure you would. Um, but it, it, and look, I, I don't have. I mean, I've never seen them play in the Super Bowl, so I guess I can't say this with certainty. Uh, I'm a Knicks fan, and and when the Knicks made the finals in '94 and lost in seven games to Houston, like that was brutal. I mean, yeah. unimaginably brutal. The last 20 years, the Knicks have generally been so bad that it's been easy to just ignore it. Like, it just become numb to it. They stink, and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, oh, my God, John Starks missed how many shots? And, 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 and you know, it's game six. We got a terrible call that cost us a home game in that series and, like, an, on a moving screen, and uh, we lost in game seven. Like, that was horrific um and and it's uh, this this is much easier than that that was more fun but this is much easier on the system yeah well i'm reminded of the notion that the opposite of hate isn't love or the opposite of love isn't hate in each case it's indifference and what you want out of fandom is either love or hate and not indifference i would say but yeah it uh, to me it makes me alive i want to talk to about Aaron Rodgers. I have, I think, a little bit of a different opinion of him and take of him than has been solidified recently. So for my listeners, he's seen as a, a, a weirdo these days. He goes on darkness retreats. He likes ayahuasca, though a lot of people like ayahuasca. And I think it does all stem from his dishonesty, not just his decision not to get vaccinated, but his dishonesty over that decision. And I say it is fair to fault him for being dishonest. However, what you have to evaluate, uh, aside from the physical skills, which I agree with you, even though he didn't have a great year last year, he certainly is starting from a high enough platform that even a diminished Aaron Rodgers, still an excellent quarterback. I think he still has the character, persona, personality to be a leader of men in the locker room. I think that we have gone way overboard with the weirdo memes to think that he is going to, his personality is going to alienate his receivers or his offensive linemen. I base this on listening to extensive interviews with him where I'm like, he seems like a good guy who people would want to follow. Uh, watching him on Jeopardy, I'm like, oh, what a affable fellow. Okay, he has quirks and weirdness, but we've gone way overboard in saying that this guy is going to be the sort of head case that maybe Kyrie Irving is in his locker room. What do you think of Rodgers' personality and character? Is that sufficient enough to be a quarterback in the NFL? Oh, hell yes. I mean, it's, I, mean, I don't, I don't even, I don't even, I dismiss the discussion. Um, <laughs> he, he's got, he's got 15 years of evidence in, in which all they've basically done is win games and he's been brilliant. Um, and I, I look, 
not everyone has to be the most popular guy in the room. Here's what he does. And look at the young Jet players and how they're reacting to the possibility of getting him burning cheeseheads on social media and and begging him to come. I think quite the contrary of being a problem. I think the minute he walks in that building, those guys all feel like we've got the guy now. We're ready to win this whole damn thing. Like we're ready to walk into Kansas City, into Cincinnati, into Buffalo, anywhere. And we got a guy who can go toe to toe with your guy. And they didn't have that last year. They had the opposite of that. They had a team that was really good, but needed to be perfect at everything else to have a chance because you were missing the, by far the one most important thing. And I think this year, all those young guys and Jet fans know who I'm talking about. Sauce Gardner and Brees Hall and Garrett Wilson and all these guys walk in there like, are you kidding? We got a dude like like yeah. you got Patrick Mahomes. Good for you. I got Aaron Rodgers. He's more than good enough. And, and Rodgers will most certainly not be intimidated by any circumstance that he faces. He will not be intimidated by the big, bad New York media. He will not be uh, overwhelmed by anything that happens. If, if he fails, I don't think it'll be for any of those reasons. So, uh, look, I, do I think that there is some risk with? Of course, there's risk. There's risk with any decision of this kind in sports or anywhere. But this feels like a bet. I am more than willing to make, and it feels like of all the realistic options, by far the best one. Last question. Will they sign him? How many wins will they have? And will he, can he change the essential nature of what it means to be a Jets fan? Yes. 12. And probably not. (laughs) Um, Which is to say, look, he definitely will be a Jet. There's zero chance that won't happen. Um, I think they'll win a lot of games. I think that the AFC is so loaded that uh, for me to sit here and tell you, yeah, he'll beat Patrick Mahomes' team and he'll beat Joe Burrow's team and he'll beat Josh Allen's team and he'll beat Trevor Lawrence's team and he'll beat who knows where Lamar Jackson is going to be and he'll beat Justin Herbert's team. Like, that's a long way to go. Like, I think they have a chance as opposed to having no chance. But you can't in any reasonable way say they're they're the best I, I forgot to even say miami who might actually be the best team of them all if their quarterback is healthy um so that could, i don't think it changes the essential nature of being a jet fan unless you at least get to the super bowl and then back to the previous point about loving and losing it could almost wind up worse because he could almost be so good and we could get so close and then he could retire, and then we could be right back where we were, if not worse. And that could just be all the more excruciating for having loved and lost, if you will. So um, I don't think it changes the essential nature of being a Jet fan un- unless he takes them farther than almost any Jet fan has ever seen them go before. I mean, you got to reasonably speaking, you got to, well, not that, what, that was 54 years ago. So, yeah, you could be okay. You could be in your 60s. So let's I don't know. I don't know what percentage it is of people who remember them in the Super Bowl. It's my mother does. I don't. Um, So whatever it is, I I think I think you have to get farther than that. You have to get back to the Super Bowl to change the nature of the Jet fan. And I it's, it's hard to it's hard to sit here and say, oh, yes, they'll definitely do that. 
Mike Greenberg is the host of Get Up on ESPN. He is the author of Got Your Number, The Greatest Sports Legends and the Numbers They Own. And he is a giant Jets fan, which is better than a Jets Giants fan. Thank you, Mike. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? I'm sitting here with Mimi Sheraton. We are in Mimi's home. Mimi Sheraton is a legendary food writer, which I think we could trot out the word, the adjective legendary, when you've been at it as long as she has. Mimi is in her early, a spry woman in her early 90s, and I've just took a gander at her kitchen, and I have to report, no food island. Maybe we could get onto the idea of the food island and how that's changed. You should know that in the Sporkful podcast, they will be featuring a few episodes based on the popular live show, Ask Mimi, and you will be able to ask Mimi all your questions based on food and entertaining because, you know... Food is about a lot more than food, and so is Mimi's career. Thanks. Thanks for having me to your home. Well, I'm delighted to have you here. Welcome. Welcome. So I did, thank you, thank you. I did check out, a little surreptitiously, check out your kitchen because I wanted to know what an august food writer, what she stocks. Lots of pans. More pans than I thought I'd see. Many in (laughs) copper. More pans than I thought I'd ever have. (laughs) Uh, Many of which I, I used to use. I don't do much cooking now, but... To be very honest about it, my husband, who had wholesale, uh, wholesale uh, he was an importer of all kinds of kitchenware and dishes, ah. and he had a line of copper, and when he closed the studio, it was really easier to bring it home than ship it back to France. So yeah. that's why I have <laughs> so, so much. And, and I, you'll notice it's not polished. Right. Yeah. But that's good. It gives it, uh, let us say, literally a patina of uh, authenticity. So let me, you know, I've, I've seen your live show a couple of times, and it does strike me that you are asked as many questions about entertaining and sort of sociology as you are food. So here's a, here's a hypothetical question. Would you rather live, let's say it's science fiction, and it's either a world where food doesn't taste totally bland, but just food in general doesn't taste as good as it does, but you have the entire social interactions around food. Or another scenario would be that food tastes wonderful, just as good as it does now, but you have to eat every meal alone. Which would you prefer? That's a very, very tough one because I am eating almost every meal alone Mm -hmm. unless I go out and uh, the meals I prepare are a hell of a lot simpler than what I, but I'm not sure how bland the first choice is. Okay. Because you didn't say it was totally bland. It's okay. It's like old bread tastes no better than Wonder Bread. and Oh, no, You know, no. your vegetables are kind of those out-of-season vegetables where a tomato has the somewhat texture of a tomato, but not the burst of a really ripe tomato. I guess every once in a while I'd have to eat alone. Yeah. <laughs> have yeah. a tasting, you know, meal with flavor. Or I would go out or send out 
to mm-hmm. where it could come in and be good. So tell me about when you got your, what was your first paying gig writing about food? My first paying gig was, I was on Seventeen Magazine, and I was the home furnishings editor. My first field was design, New York School of Interior Design and that. And uh, I shared an office with the food editor, and she left, and they said, and they, the editor knew I loved to cook, and then I potted around in the kitchen. She said, why don't you do that too, because it's not such a big deal on 17, and you can do food and home furnishings. So I did. What year was this? Let's see, I joined them in 49, and I would guess in about... 51 or 52. So in 1951, was there a notion of a 17-year-old, essentially someone about to become a wife? Oh, no. No, no, no. no. 17 Magazine, which began about seven or eight years before I joined it, was the dream of a woman named Helen Valentine who wanted a magazine for teenagers, not college as Mademoiselle was or Glamour. It had to do with a fashion size that was a teen size. Okay. And the way she ran the magazine is you never grow older with your reader. When your reader, you know, you you do uh, freshman, sophomore, junior, but you don't do first year in college. Mm -hmm. You keep going back to the earlier grades because that's your market. So it was very much a teenager. But back then, a teenager would be interested in furnishing? I don't know that. Uh, Fixing her room. Okay. How to paint unpainted furniture, how to make curtains, how to spatter paint. But what was important, and this will seem incredible, they had in middle America hope chests. Uh Uh-huh. Lane Cedar Chest was one of our biggest advertisers, and the girls would register a silver pattern in high school before they had a boyfriend and start collecting silver. It had more silver advertising than any magazine, including House and Garden, House Beautiful, Vogue. They picked out china patterns, glass, and even more crazy, (laughs) sheets and blankets. Yeah. And that was my department. (laughs) Decorating table settings. There were teenage table setting contests in department stores all across the United States. I would go as a judge. Oh, wow. So that was home furnishings. Now, how old were you when you were writing for the uh, teenage set? Well, I was born in 26, so in 49, I was 23. Yeah, so not that much older than the reader, but you had a little but bit of experience. But very different. Yes. I mean, a New Yorker, a yes. Brooklynite, a, a hope chest. What, what <laughs> a cedar chest was where you put your blankets in, yeah. in the summer, you know. And what kind but of food issues would in 19... 19- party cooking, yeah. cakes to so bake. So what was a popular party dish to make in 49 for a teenage girl? They did a lot with ham butts. They did a lot with pasta, baked macaroni and cheese. With some. There was a feature called Every Crowd Likes. Uh-huh. And every month there would be one dish that every crowd liked. And uh, once we got a new editor who was a little out of tune, and she suggested to me, she said, why don't you do Every Crowd Likes Those Little Fish? I said, you mean every crowd likes smelts? She said, yes. Yeah. I said, I don't think so. <laughs> teenage kids smelts. Were. And then we would do, you know, for Christmas, Christmas cookies to make as gifts, candies yeah. to make as gifts, uh, 
the diet was separate. There was a separate writer on health and diet, so I didn't have to deal with that. So did you sort of age out of the magazine? Did you want to write for a lo- an older, more mature audience? I did because of home furnishings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to do, and I left to become the managing editor of House Beautiful Supplement Division, which was a series of magazines partially based on material in House Beautiful and partly original, most especially a quarterly called Guide for the Bride. It was mm. a bridal magazine. So I was back with the silver and the china <laughs> and the glass. But, uh, and then I freelanced for about 20 years yeah. after that. And so you became the food critic for the New York Times. The first place I became the food critic for was Q Magazine. I remember Q. That was an insert in New York magazine. No, that was much later when New York bought it. But it was a separate freestanding weekly. Yeah, and they would have listings. Listings. And the listings is the reason that New York Magazine bought it. And the woman who did the listings went to New York. She used to live across the street, Florence Fletcher. Then after Q... Uh, for various reasons, about three or four years, I stopped that and went to the Village Voice, mm-hmm. the original Village yeah. Voice. So is food food critic the same as restaurant critic? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, not, not entirely because I critiqued a lot of food that wasn't restaurant, mm-hmm. which is the best butter, which is the best what you can tell about uh, salmon or caviar or what you can tell about an egg before you break it open. I did a big story on that. Given so, that platform, do you think that you made any food trends that we're still living with? No, but there were restaurants that are still riding on that, like Rayos, like The Palm, a little bit like Chez Lamy Louis yeah. in Paris. Uh, you really the, championed them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of restaurants tell me, you know, still now, I remember as far as products, there used to be a wonderful bakery on Third Avenue in the 70s called Bonté. The baker was Maurice Bonté. And at one point I decided... I haven't seen lady fingers in a long time. I love lady fingers. Who makes them? So I found a few packaged kinds, and then I went to Bonté. And they always had lady fingers because you need them if you're going to make a Charlotte mold. Because okay. a Charlotte mold is lined with lady fingers. And I bought some. They never knew who I was. I bought some, and they were delicious. And I wrote about them. And Maurice Bonté later told me for five years one-third of all of his sales were ladyfingers. Wow. I thought that was, you know, I, I generally looked for the little old thing, and it turned out that people, other people were longing for that too. Right. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, your hatred of Cal. I think it's a bold stance in 2018. <laughs> Defend yourself. Well, there's only, there are a couple of ways I have liked it, as I said in one of my first yeah. columns for the Daily Beast. One of the problems with Cal now is the way it's prepared, raw or grilled or in a lot of things like brownies or something it doesn't belong in. There is a fantastic Portuguese soup called caldo verde, which is kale, potatoes, merguez, sausage, onion, and it's cooked down to a soft, creamy, lovely state. Uh, When the Italians or Southerners cook kale, they cook it with a lot of grease. Italians would do it with olive oil and garlic, uh, but cook it soft. And in the South, it would be ham hock or a piece of salt pork. It has to, and the Chinese would do it with oil. It has to uh, absorb the oil to be soft. And when I was a kid, 
In winter, all of the greengrocers kept the kale outside so that it would freeze because the idea was once a vegetable like that freezes, the, the cell membranes or cell walls in the case of kale are broken open because, you know, when something freezes, there's moisture and it expands. Yes. So that would break it open. Then when you cooked it for a yeah. long time, it was very soft. Yeah. Uh, I, I am a little suspicious of any food stuff that has the same organizing principles as the George Washington Bridge, that it expands <laughs> in cold. <laughs> a lot of food does. I, I'm going to guess that you're a big fan of ice cream over frozen yogurt. No. No? I never even heard of it till this very minute. For ice cream over frozen yogurt? No. You prefer oh, ice cream oh. to frozen yogurt. Oh, and That'd be a great dish. <laughs> I thought it was a new kind of sure. sundae. Ice cream, then frozen yogurt, then syrup. You better be careful. A little whipped <laughs> cream on top it. of yeah. that. I much prefer ice cream. Of course you fair. do. I like yeah. yogurt, but I don't think I have ever bought frozen yogurt. Yeah. Do you? Are there any candies that you like? Yes, I like... Um, Chocolate almond brittle. Okay. Uh, I like very bitter thin chocolate. I'm not a big fan of bonbons, although I've just had a box from Jacques Tours that were wonderful because they were all thin and just had little crunchy fillings. I like frozen Milky Ways. When I wrote my book, my last book, which you may know, A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die, the first two things I wrote down that I was going to put in it were frozen Milky Ways and caviar. Yeah, and that was kind of the range. In that the was book. The, yeah. Those are the ends. You're defining. Oh, yeah. that's really good. Yeah. So as you tell me about working for Seventeen Magazine, then working for the different publications that you've worked for, and New York Magazine, it does seem to me that a case can be made that your career has, to some extent, tracked our society's definition of women women in the kitchen, what women should do in terms of, like you mentioned, the diet editor. And I'm just wondering from your vantage point, how you look at this moment and uh, what we're talking about in terms of our relationship to food, our relationship to uh, body and our relationship as a society to, you know, how important uh, cooking and providing for the family should be for a woman. For a woman, yeah. why not for a man well, too, providing just... for the family and, and cooking. I don't believe that everyone has to love to cook or be good at it. I think the, a parent's role is to provide a good meal for the children, whether they make it or buy it prepared. I don't have any strong feeling, at a, especially at a time when both parents are working. So to denigrate someone because he or she doesn't like to cook and isn't a good parent, therefore, is something I don't believe. I believe send out or buy or do something for a good wholesome meal. And the most important part of it for a family is eating together and talking about your day and, and what, what's happened. I think one of the very good things that's been happening is the more credit going to female chefs. Right. That, I think, is a step in the right direction. <clears throat> I was the first woman critic at the New York Times. Of and any section? Of any? Uh, no, of the uh, food, of oh, okay. the restaurant okay. critic. Yeah. And um, when Craig Claiborne left, he was the most famous one <clears throat> who started restaurant criticism at the time. Um, I applied, like a lot of other people, and the word was out from editors at the paper who went out to play, they wanted a man. 
And the editor of that section was named Charlotte Curtis. She was a tremendous feminist, and she wanted only a man for that job. I think there was kind of a cachet or a style in having a boulevardier who, who could bring something to it. So three critics later, all men after Craig, I was already writing for New York Magazine, and the Times called me and said, would you come over? And I said, well, I want to be the restaurant critic. And they said, well, John Kennedy still is, but he's not going to keep it very long, and it's yours, when it, and that's what happened. Yeah. So it was six months later, John, when he went on vacation uh, for four weeks. I did the column for four weeks. He came back and said, you're so much more serious about this, I'm going to. And he was the art critic of the paper. So he had another big job. And the restaurant critic was sort of a sideline. It wasn't considered a job in and of itself. And I always wrote for the food section. None of the critics at the Times now do food articles, but I would do how to tell the best caviar or how to make something. Or I mean, I was in the Wednesday section all the time, though my reviews were in the Friday section, in the weekend section. Mimi Sheraton, in addition to hosting a bunch of episodes on the Sporkful podcast, is also the author of A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die, which makes a great Hanukkah or Christmas present. And we should say it ranges from caviar to Milky Way and everything in between except for maple syrup. Thank you, Mimi. <laughs> Thank you, Mimi. Thank you very much, Mark. It was fun. And that's it for the show this week, which was produced, as always, by producer Corey Wara, and the Just Senior producer is Joel Patterson. I will talk to you on Monday.